say that again. And I joke and I tell people I have old man ears. I'm 41 years old, but my ears are like, more like an 80-year-old, right? So I have hearing aids. I've had them for 13 years. My wife would say that I've needed them for much, much longer than that. But, but I, have, I have old man ears, and even with hearing aids at times, uh, trying to hear everybody or people can be a little mentally exhausting. I, I still regularly tell people, ask people to repeat themselves. I'll, I'll catch a part of what they say, but not all of it. My dad uh, had hearing loss as well, and I could always tell uh, when he didn't understand uh, what somebody was saying because he'd get a little smirk on his face and he'd, he'd shake his head and he'd say, I understand, or that's understandable. I'm like, Dad, you just lied. He lies to everybody because he couldn't understand them. When I'm in public, my kids and Morgan, they're not surprised when I say, hey, what, what'd they say? Uh, if Morgan is with me, then I let her talk to people at counters and cashiers and things. And if she's not with me, uh, then w- and one of the kids is, they know they have to stand right by me because at some point I'm going to say, what what they say? Um, so it, it's a little exhausting at times, but there's some good, uh, you know, there's some good things about he- having hearing aids. It's like I have uh, AirPods or Bluetooth uh, um, uh, air- headphones in my ears at all, all times. Right, you 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 can't even know, uh, but but I'll be listening to a podcast. Um, sometimes when the kids get a little too loud or or maybe too annoying, then then I can turn the volume down. <laughs> That's a benefit. And then maybe best of all for for men is that when my wife tells me I told you this earlier, I can honestly turn to her and say I didn't hear you. Having old man ears can be a little exhausting, uh, but at times it can be a little anxiety-inducing as well. If my hearing aids uh, beep a warning at me on Sunday mornings, I get a little anxious because it means the batteries are about to die, and you kind of know my job is to talk to people on Sunday mornings. And so when my hearing aids die and I can't hear anything, there is absolutely no chance to have a conversation. And I don't want people to, uh, to think that I don't care. I don't want to miss something that is important or uh, some audio warning that's around me. But today, when we look at 1 Samuel chapter 28, we're going to read it here in just a second, verses 3 through 25. We're going to, have the, we're going to talk about the scariest silence of all, the scariest uh, time of not being able to hear. And we're going to see in the life of Saul, uh, as his kingship is coming to, to the end, when God is silent, when God does not speak to him. Let's read our passage, and then we'll pray. Starting in verse 3, it says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunan. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart, greatly, his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets." And then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to, her, said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. And so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. Uh, he and two men went with him. 
And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever, whomever I shall name for you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore, swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And the woman said, Whom shall I bring up? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his, what is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then did you ask me, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. And Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants and together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and servants and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you, Lord, that you both challenge us and encourage us through successes and failures that you show us clearly in the Bible. God, as we look at Saul's life, we recognize the despair that he's in and we relate. Today, I pray that you would encourage us. You would encourage us in knowing you more passionately pursuing you more. Lord, may your word find fertile soil in our hearts today. It's in your name. So one of the reasons that we prefer our preference here at Mount Calvary is to teach through books of the Bible uh, over time is because we'll come to chapters like chapter 28 or even like chapter 27 last week, and we will teach them (laughs) It will not be a passage that it would be a passage that we may skip if we had the choice. 
Last week, Pastor Matt walked us through chapter 27, and David, he talked us through David's roller coaster of faith, how he had really high highs, successes, where he, he was victorious, and he was obedient, and he had faith and trust in God. And then last week, where he was in a valley, and he was at the lowest of low points, where he ran away, he didn't even mention God or call out to God in all of chapter 27. And so he was discouraged He makes some important decisions but doesn't go to God or ask him what he should do, and that is very uncharacteristic of David. God is not mentioned in chapter 27. So we come to chapter 28, and we see Saul, and the author, uh, God through the author of 1 Samuel, is trying to give us a comparison and a contrast between David and between Saul. Both men are discouraged and afraid. In chapter 27, verse 1, David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. And so this is why he ran away. And in chapter 28, verse 5, Saul says he saw the army of the Philistines and he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. So that's the, the comparison that they're both in situations of great fear, of great uncertainty. And then how do they respond? David responds by running. Saul responds, interestingly enough, by calling upon the Lord. He responds by crying out or inquiring of the Lord in verse 6, chapter 28, verse 6. But then the next words in verse 6, after it says Saul inquired of the Lord, are the saddest and most terrifying words, I think, that we can read. It says, the Lord did not answer him. Most of our time today, we're going to look at three questions from this chapter. One, why is God silent? Why is God's silence so terrifying? And then, should we be afraid of God's silence today? I believe those are the primary purpose that, uh, that, that God has for us in chapter 28 um, we're going to get to that in just a second because there's an important aside or uh, there, there's some questions that arise naturally out of this passage. This passage is interesting because um, it openly talks about a seance or a necromancy, a medium that calls up ghosts and asks the, Samuel prophet, the prophet Samuel's ghost to appear and he shows. So first, this passage doesn't give us a how-to guide of how that works. I don't think God wants us to know how that works. But it does show us that it happens. In reality, I think, you know, our Western world upbringings, our, our educated minds, we have a hard time understanding the spiritual world at times. And when we look in the New Testament, especially in the ministry of Jesus, we see that Jesus heals and uh, casts out demons. Demons that cause illness, both physical or spiritual They cause despair, and Jesus casts them out. It's a real thing. It's a real aspect of Jesus' ministry. The New Testament clearly teaches that Satan is real, that Jesus was tempted by him and resisted temptation. We don't believe these are just figurative. These are real events that happened. And so when we come to chapter 28, I believe this is real. This is a real, actual event that happened. It's not some form of trickery. It's not uh, some hallucination. Saul went to a witch, a median, uh, living in Endor. He goes to the medium and he asks for Samuel's spirit to be be brought up. He believed it was possible or else he would not have gone. 
And the woman, whether she was a huckster or charlatan most of the time, she was successful in this passage. We don't know when she expresses surprise or uh, she exclaims after Samuel comes up and she says, why have you deceived me in verse 12? She was obviously either one, not expecting it to happen, but it did, or two, because it did happen, was uh, immediately aware that it was Saul who had tricked her. So one commentator uh, said it this way about this, the practice of mediums uh, and necromancy. He says, we must remember that scripture describes such practices not as futile, but as pagan. Yahweh forbids Israel to use, the, use these means, not because they do not work, but because they are wicked. So just as an aside, the natural question that arises out of this passage, but that's not the purpose of the passage. Right? I just don't want that to be a distraction for us today. The purpose of the passage, the key verses, I think, are verses 5 and 6. They'll be on the screen again. It says, When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Now, the Urim would have been like an ephod or a religious artifact to have been used in casting lots where they would say, God, control the roll of the dice, basically, is how you you could see it. And they believed that God would speak through that. But in this, God did not speak. God did not answer in either or any of the ways that he had before. Remember, Saul and many of his men, when he sent his men to to get Samuel, or to get David, that many of his men prophesied and returned home. And then Saul went and he prophesied, but here God does not speak. So why is God silent? Samuel gives us an explanation. His, his spirit comes up in verses 16 uh, through 18. He gives an explanation for why this is to happen. Samuel says in verse 16, the Lord has turned away from you and you are his enemy. Verse 17, he says, The Lord has turned your kingdom out of your hands and given it to your neighbor, David. And in verse 18, he says, It's because you did not obey the voice of the Lord against Amalek. Now, if we take a quick trip back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, you're going to see this instance of Amalek, where where Saul is given a mission by the Lord in verse 3 to go and strike Amalek and devote everything to destruction not to spare any man or woman or child or infant, oxen or sheep or camel or donkey. And in verse seven, Saul is obedient. He goes and he is victorious. God gives him victory. And yet in verse nine, Saul does not obey the Lord's command. It says, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Right? Saul said when they were victorious, he said, God can have everything that's not worth anything. Everything else is going to be ours. God doesn't know what is best. I know what is best. And in verse 19, Samuel comes to Saul and he asks him, why did you not obey? And he, he passed judgment. He says, for rebellion is as a sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. 
And in the chapters that follow in, in 1 Samuel, uh, David is anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the next chapter. And then in all of the things where uh, Saul achieves a blessing or success, it is all because of the faith and faithfulness of David. It is not because of Saul, David's faith in facing Goliath, David being victorious over the Philistines time and time again, even David having the opportunity twice to kill Saul chose not to. All of the good things that happen in Saul's life are because of the faith and faith of David. And that's what we see in, in chapters 15 through 28 is we see the real Saul. We see a man that's lacking in faith. We see a man overwhelmed by jealousy and overcome with fits of anger. And now we come to chapter 28. And verse 3, we're reminded that the prophet Samuel is dead. And chapter 27 tells us that Saul had driven David away. So all the godly men that had walked with them uh, in the past were gone because he had pushed them out. And when Saul is confronted with the biggest challenge of his rule over Israel, the Philistine army, he is afraid. And the Lord does not answer. Proverbs 1, verses 28 through 31, kind of sums up uh, the, the overall overarching uh, arc of this, right? It's not talking about Saul specifically, but this is what is happening. It says, then they will call upon me and I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Saul was a religious man. He did a lot of things that fell within the religious trappings of being an Israelite. He had the people, after he was crowned king, he had the people make offerings to the Lord. Before he went into battle, he wanted Samuel to be there to make offerings to the Lord that they might have success. He made oaths before God. Verse 3 even tells us in this chapter that he made an effort to drive out all the medians and all the necromancers just as God had said. And even here at the end, Saul inquires of the Lord. He is a religious man, but he was not a man who feared the Lord. He feared a lot of things in his life. He feared failure. He feared embarrassment. He feared judgment. He feared losing everything. But he did not fear the Lord. And that is why God is silent. When the Israelites demanded a human king, Samuel the prophet was in despair and distraught, went to God and crying out to God. And God said, it is not you they have rejected, Samuel. It is me. They have rejected me as their king, and I will give them the king that they want. One who did not fear God. One who did not uh, make God his one true king. And so now, at a point at the end of Saul's life, what we know is setting up uh, the end of Saul's life in 1 Samuel chapter 31, uh, we'll come back to Saul again. God is silent. That is why God is silent now. Why is God's silence so terrifying? I think Saul's actions here, Saul's uh, actions here demonstrate to us the temptation that we all face when God is silent. 
in silence, Saul turns to what he knows is wrong. Right? We're told he knows what is wrong because he's already cast out the mediums and the necromancers in verse 3. But in verse 7, when God is silent, what does he do? He turns to them. He says, find me one. He knew it was wrong. And so in his temptation, we, the, in temptation, when God is silent, we face, what will we do? Will we do what God wants us to do? Will we remain faithful and wait on the Lord? Or will we turn to our own strength and understanding? This is the same, this is very similar to what happens in 1 Samuel 13. Samuel, Saul is at, lined up with the army of Israel before the Philistines, and he's waiting on Samuel. And he waits seven days for Samuel to come and make an offering before the Lord. But he can wait no longer. And so he does what is right in his own eyes. He's like, well, Samuel, you were taking too long. So he made the offering to the Lord, which was disobedient because he was not a Levitical priest. And he failed the test of waiting on the Lord. The silence of God in our lives can tempt us to question whether God exists. It can tempt us to question whether God cares for us. It can tempt us to question whether God even has the power and the ability to act. The silence of God in our lives can cause us to doubt our faith, asking whether God has abandoned us, is even real. In the silence, many of us will turn to our own strength and understanding. We will stop crying out to the Lord just as Saul does here. And the voices in our head of doubt and despair and hopelessness will point us to compromising our faith. They, they will, they will, to making choices that we know are contrary to our relationship with God. To find hope, uh, the hope of finding some relief or some happiness or some distraction in sin something that is contrary to God. I'm often extremely brokenhearted, but rarely surprised by Christians falling into sin. People that I've loved with and walked with, pastors that I've respected and looked up to, people that have encouraged me in my, my faith, Maybe they've chosen to distance themselves from God and the people of God. Maybe they're facing a trial like none other in their life. And in those moments, sin looks so comfortable. Satan convinces us that our private sin won't hurt anybody. He encourages, Satan encourages us to abuse the grace of God by saying God will forgive us. It doesn't matter. Truly terrifying that none of us are failure-proof. There's no one in this room that, that could not fail. Did I say that right? I think I said that right. Ultimately, the silence of God is so terrifying because it is then that we have to decide whether we are going to fully trust our God and whether we will trust in ourselves. You know, it's easy when you get married to stand up on the, uh, on the podium before the pastor and say, you will love each other for all the days, no matter what happens in your life, it's much harder to do that when you're in the midst of trial and discouragement. Ultimately, the silence of God is terrifying because it's then, in that moment of trial and difficulty that we have to trust. True trust in God requires that we surrender our will and our understanding, our feelings, our anxiety, our, our fears, even our hopes to the sovereign will of God. Silence of God is truly terrifying. 
But should we be afraid of that today? Should we be afraid of God's silence in our lives today? And some of you, I know, some of you listening in this room today or listening later uh, to this message, I know where you're at. You feel God is silent. You feel distanced or separated from God. You feel like your life is not the abundant life that John chapter 10, verse 10 tells us that our relationship with Christ should be. You're drowning in the trials you're experiencing today and you're gasping for air and desperately wanting some hope in your situation. And you've all but given up that God even cares, that God even understands. I hope you'll be encouraged to know that others in this room have walked the same journey, different circumstances, sure, but they have walked in the same silence and despair and hopelessness, maybe for days, maybe for weeks or months or years. All of us are broken by sin. All of us are broken by sin. All of us are weak and helpless. And without Jesus, we are hopeless. But in our brokenness, we learn to trust God. In our weakness, we grow in our dependence upon God. And there are many examples. As we look through scripture, there are many examples of people that cry out to God in anguish because God is silent or doesn't appear to be present in their lives. In Job, Job chapter 13, verse 24, Job cries out to God. He says, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? And we know if we read the book of Job, Job did not sin, but Job was being tested. And in that test, he cries out to God. He says, God, where are you? In Habakkuk chapter one, one of the prophets cries out to God. He says, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? In 1 Kings 19, uh, chapter, or verse 4, Elijah is the prophet. Elijah had just experienced a great victory over the, the priests of uh, Baal and Asherah and on Mount Carmel. He just experienced a great victory over 900 priests. God had achieved great victory. And yet in the very next chapter, Elijah's uh, alone and asked God to let him die. He is so discouraged. The Psalms are replete with expressions of the silence of God and many by David. Psalm 13, verse one, David cries out. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 22, verses one and two says, my God, David cries out. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. We could look at other prophets. We could look at others in the Old Testament where they feel like God has abandoned them and he's not present because he is silent. But for the sake of time, let's look to Jesus on the cross. Matthew chapter 7, 27, verse 46, he cries out on the cross the same thing that David cries out. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time in all of existence, Jesus, God the Son, was separated from God the Father because he took on the sins of the world and God could not look upon sin. Jesus experienced separation from God so that you and I don't have to. He paid the penalty of the sin that all of us owed but would forever be unable to pay and he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. And after it was all over, Hebrews 10, 12 says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
we will experience silence from God in our lives. But we do not have to be afraid of it. We no longer have to fear the silence of God in our lives. We are still sinners. We're still weak. We're still frail. We're prone to wonder, prone to depend upon our own strength and understanding. But in Jesus, if we've made him our one true king, Hebrews 4.15 says we have a high priest who sympathizes with us, who knows all of, the weak, of our weaknesses and has been tempted in every respect and yet was without sin. We do not have to fear the silence of God in our lives. But instead of turning to sin, we must continually cry out to God all the more. In the, in the Psalms, as David cries out to God and says, where are you? You read his Psalms of despair. Almost all of them will lead him to the point where he's praising God. He says, my heart will praise you. Your word will forever be on my lips. I will sing your praises. He continually cries out to God in the silence. Saul cried out to God one time. God did not answer, and so Saul turned to something else. So this is the contrast. David appears to have failed in chapter 27, and Saul seems to be doing the right things in chapter 28, and yet the difference is Saul did not fear the Lord. So how do we combat the silence of God in our lives? How do you wait for God so what I'm going to share in the next few minutes is not new. If you've here, been here, you will have heard it before. It's not rocket science. It's so decidedly simple that sometimes we dismiss it because it's like, oh, that's not going to help. It's not enough. First, you have to become a disciple of Jesus. We have to submit to Jesus as our king, of the, as the one true king of our life. And it doesn't mean that all of our problems magically go away because they don't. It doesn't mean our trials and difficulties go away overnight, but we no longer have to face them in our own feeble strength. We face them with a king who has all the power in the world, who would carry us and care for us every step of the way. So we have to become disciples of Jesus. Second, we need to grow as disciples. This is what we call here at Mount Calvary the discipleship journey. Again, it's not rocket science, but these are seven basic habits that we feel are essential to growing in our passionate pursuit of Jesus. And if you, give, if you point to somebody that is, uh, is living in fear or, or doubt and have walked away from God, I can tell you they've walked away from these habits, right? They've walked away from these habits, the things that we do to draw close to God, they're essential in our passionate pursuit of him. So we're just gonna hit on a few of these right? Uh, we need to study the Bible. We need to regularly be reading the word of God. This is how God primarily speaks to us today uh, is through his word. And when we step away from it, from the source as the source of sustenance in our life is when sin so easily convinces us that something else will make us happy. That something else will meet the need. We need to worship together. We need to worship together. Is, is worshiping in song and through the preaching of the word a priority or is of secondary importance? You come even when you don't want to because you know that it brings honor and glory to God and that God may speak to you. Are you connected in community? Are you, are you trying to face the challenges in life alone? Right? When, you're, when you're discouraged and depressed or you're fighting the silence of God, the thing that you want to do more than anything else is to distance yourself from everybody else. You don't want them to see you being weak. 
you also don't have the energy to be around them. But that is not how God has designed us. He's not designed us to be alone, but is at first in, intends for us to depend upon him and second, upon each other. The Bible tells us that all members of the body are, are, are all members are one part of the body. And sometimes one part of the body is injured and needs special attention. We have community groups and grow groups. We have women's Bible studies. We have uh, our men's group that, that has been get, getting going. We have opportunities for you to connect in community. And I promise you, you will not always want to. But it's good. It is how God has intended. Are we confessing sin? This is the scary one, is, but it's essential. If you're not willing to confess your sin to one another, are you truly repented before God? Saul had expressed sorrow multiple times throughout these chapters of 1 Samuel. When, Samuel. when the prophet Samuel confronted him back in chapter 15, he expressed sorrow, but he was never truly repentant. God was only a tool. His religion was only a tool to keep what he had. And then we serve others. It's hard to focus on ourselves and our problems. We're focused on helping others. And then we're third, we're to go and make disciples. Tell others all of he's done. And we tell others about his greatness, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. We remind ourselves of those great truths. Years ago, uh, after we had moved up to Pennsylvania, our house in Kentucky was still on the market. Um, we, we had put our house in the market on April of the year I graduated seminary. We got hired by a church, small little church in Mannheim uh, in May, and then we waited for our house to sell, and it didn't sell. We had hundreds of people come and see the house. Uh, during that time. And we came to November uh, and our little church in Mannheim, and we agreed that it was time to move forward in faith and for us to move up to Pennsylvania. And the next four months of waiting were absolutely excruciating. Morgan's job that had supposed to have been uh, more likely to be permanent for her to be remote, uh, we were told that it was going to end after only just four months. And there was a song that I had on repeat. I'm not a song person. I don't remember lyrics. I don't remember artists. It's just, I think it has something to do with just having hearing loss. It's just music is hard for me to connect with at times. But there was a song by John Waller. He says, While I Am Waiting. And it was a song that I had on repeat in my car. Uh, and in other and longer and even more painful seasons of doubt in my life, I've gone back to that song to remind myself that my job isn't to figure it all out. My, my job is not to be the strongest person and solve it with my own strength, but it's to walk in faith and obedience, to serve and to worship and to wait. In just a minute, the band is gonna come and, and after I pray briefly, we're gonna have a time of confession before God. And if today, if you are discouraged or if you're struggling, I ask that you just cry out to God during this time. Cry out to him and say, God, I need you. Even if you don't hear his response or feel his presence, you cry out to him, say, God, I need you and I will follow you. If you know of sin in your life that separates you from God, in this moment, you can confess to God and say, God, I lay this down at your feet. I give this up. I let you be king over all the areas of my life. He is faithful to forgive. 
Maybe you're here today and you haven't made Jesus the king of your life. And today you can cry out to him. You can cry out to him and say, God, I need you. I don't understand everything and that's okay, but I need you. Forgive me of my sin and be the king of my life. And after a time of confession, we'll come back together and we'll sing a song, I will wait for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you that you are faithful and true. Lord, that, that even though we will experience moments of silence and doubt or seasons of painful silence, Lord, we know we don't have to be afraid of that silence anymore. You give us all the tools that we need to cry out to you, to come to you, to draw close and cling to you. Lord, I pray that you would encourage people here today that are struggling in that way. You are still there. You still love and care for them and you are still watching over them. For those that are here today, God, that have separated from you, Lord, that have put a distance and a blocker between you and them, Lord, I pray they would give their sin to you and ask for forgiveness and make you Lord and King over all their lives. Challenge and encourage us now, God.